0: Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. I'm excited to go through these passages today. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 32. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. It's a favorite passage of mine or one of my favorites. While you're turning to Psalm 32, my teenage daughters taught me a word a couple years ago. I'd never heard of it before. Um, is the word chugi. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the word chugi before. Really? Okay, well you're about to learn something. This is all for free too. Chuggy is the term given to somebody that is perpetually three or four years behind what is cool and relevant, yet they kind of try really hard to be relevant. If I was to dab up here today, very chuggy move on my part, right? I think the, the fact that I'm even using the word chuggy now that I think about it is probably in itself chuggy because I bet the word itself is not even cool anymore. So if you are like me and just a little bit behind what's cool and relevant at all times, then uh, you'll be happy to know there was a song that came out in 2017, um, which feels like in a million years ago, now that I say it out loud. It feels like a totally different era. Um, Demi Lovato, which I know is on everybody's playlist, uh, she has a song, Sorry Not Sorry, which, if you just didn't know, is another way of saying, I'm not sorry, right? Sorry not sorry is translated to, I am not sorry and don't care that my behavior upsets you. Does that sound helpful at all? That kind of apology that's not really an apology? Um, It's kind of human nature to feign change and feign apology, which is why I think today is going to be helpful for us as disciples as we learn how to repent, just what it means, which is a word we use all the time, but I don't know that we really understand all of the edges of what it means to repent. We started this series three weeks ago, the very first week of the year on what it looks like for a disciple to grow and change. It's just a disciple's journey. And in week one, we saw how for you and me to grow, it means that over time we develop uh, what what looks like tree rings, um, layers of incremental growth. And our growth is really just that. It's incremental. Um, But we also saw that to grow means to change, and to change means to lose some things, and to lose some things is painful. That was the big, big idea for week one. And then two weeks ago, which was week two, we saw that to grow or to change, that's a supernaturally brokered event, something that the Holy Spirit does in us and why it's important to always have a sensitivity and not a dullness to the voice of God through his Spirit to us. So we learned that. And then last week we saw that real change, not changing a habit, but real core level change is gospel-centered, right? And how real change is not just changing our behavior, but actually changing our God. And instead of pointing our affections towards the idols that our heart builds and that we are very good at building, actually redirecting our affections at their deepest to the Lord. Today I want to look at another aspect of a disciple's change, and that is that disciples with a sharp growth curve will often repent and repent well. In fact, as Charlie said earlier, we are repeat repenters. That sounds a little counterintuitive on its face, though, right? That the holier we are and the more we grow towards Christ, the more we repent. It sounds to me like what it should be is the more we grow, the less we repent. That's not true. It's the other way around. In fact, as we grow in our holiness, there's going to be an increase, a radical increase in how much we repent. And not just how much we repent, but how fast we get there how authentic it is when we are repenting. Even the things we will find ourselves repenting over as we grow will get smaller and smaller in shape. That's because the light of Christ in our life will start to show even the small things that were probably undetectable a year ago, a decade ago, even 20 minutes ago. There might be something small that we would have looked over. You crank the light up, and now you see every speck. These are the things we know. But another thing we know is the struggle we have with repenting, especially when we repent over one or two things that just seem to never change, right? Repeat repenting in one direction. Some of us struggle with this. Much of our confession sounds like a broken recording, Some of you probably even wondered if it means anything at all. You wonder if you even mean it when you repent. You do something, whatever that something is in your life, and I'm just going to leave it a fill in the blank, and you can fill in the blank, whether it's pornography or gossip or anger, or maybe you're not doing some things, whether it's evangelism, giving, serving, being in community, whatever it is, there's something that whenever you trip on it and you feel the conviction, you say in your heart, I'm never doing that again, never doing it again only to later on say, I did it again. And you come back around, and back around, and back around. The big question we're going to carry into Psalm 32 is when we turn from sin back to God, which is the basic definition of repentance. When we turn from our sin back to God, what does that conversation sound like for you? What does that conversation sound like for you, between you and the Lord? Also, is there a conversation necessary between you and someone else? So not what does the conversation sound like only in a vertical plane, but maybe a horizontal one, right? Maybe a secondary question. Why even ask for forgiveness inside of our repentance if God has already forgiven us from the cross, right? We looked at this question in detail in our men's ministry two weeks ago or our men's Um, Bible study, listen, if you're a guy and you're looking to get into a good Bible study, we have one on Thursdays at seven morning. We only have a few seats left though, all right? So if that's something that you're interested in, come up and talk to me. I'd love to give you the specifics on that. But it's a good question worth asking. I mean, if you're here or you're watching and maybe you don't love Jesus or maybe you're not sure if you love Jesus, maybe you like Jesus, maybe you even believe the Bible, maybe you grew up in church, but you don't think you've given yourself totally to who God is. You've not really been what we would call sold out or truly born again. You wouldn't use some of those words. I'm curious as to what comes to your mind first when I say the word repentance or repent. I wonder what Knoxville thinks whenever I say repent. What's the, what's the knee-jerk reaction? I wonder if they just feel judged, repulsed, bored, I feel like it's a relevant term. I bet maybe all three or four, maybe a combination thereof, but what if repentance is the beginning of a better life? What if repentance is the end of just being useless, the end of being miserable? What if, what if repentance is something that we as a people looked forward to? What if repentance is something we were really good at because we were very practiced in? Right? Let's look at Psalm 32. This is a good picture of repentance in the life of David. We're only going to read the first five verses of this psalm. Just to remind you, this is a song, as the psalms are. This is poetic language, and David was very good at it. We're going to see Christ clearly in this, and we're going to see giant application for you and me today. But in Psalm 32, verse 1, David starts off saying, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I always like to try to condense every passage we go through into one brief sentence just to give the main idea. I think the one here is that David repents with an authentic conviction, but after a season of silence. We kind of pick up that. I mean, we can conclude that David for some time, we don't really know how long, had suppressed his sin, had pushed it down. We understand this just makes sense to us. It's our go-to strategy. That's what we do. A lot of times. We will press it down. We reason in our head somehow, and I don't know exactly how the reason works, but that time, just time past kind of cleanses things. That if we just can pack enough time between the wound into today, that it makes us clean. I think we get this maybe from how we damage each other. I'm not for sure on this. I'll submit it to you. You can speculate along with me. But uh, sometimes when somebody wounds you with a harsh word, I mean, it stings. Three weeks later, it just doesn't sting as much. Three years later, you might not even remember it, right? That's why we say let bygones be bygones. But we also saw a couple weeks ago that unconfessed and unrepentant sin will callous our hearts. It will dull our spirit to where we can't really pick up the signal and the noise. We cannot hear the Holy Spirit, and that makes us a very dangerous and miserable people when that is the case. As I told the men a couple weeks ago, time does many things. One thing it does not do well is make a very good Jesus. Will not cleanse. Will not forgive. Time does not do a good job of fixing things that are always broken. I think we can also conclude in this that David's spiritual problem becomes a physical one. Unconfessed and unrepentant sin has the potential to affect our bodies, right? I don't think I have to be a dork and go into just the biochemistry of how all of this happens. You know, I like doing things like that, but I think we all get it. I don't think anyone would argue with something like that. This guy says he has no strength, weak bones, groaning. He's obviously not in his physical prime, right? Not in this passage, Friends, we can make ourselves sick with stubborn refusal to answer the Holy Spirit's conviction and to repent. We can. I just love the vivid picture of this psalm. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to just watch how did David get from sorry, not sorry, all the way to this place of none of my sins are covered except for you. You cover my sins, but I cover them before you no longer. I mean, how did he get from one to the other? I would have loved to have seen that. I think one thing we learn in watching David here is that genuine repentance, genuine change begins with the Holy Spirit's conviction, but that always brings wrestling, doesn't it? Don't we wrestle with the Lord whenever conviction comes? Because we see by his word that what we're doing or want to do or are not doing, it, it's, it's a sin against God, but then we also kind of just want to do it. And so we're pulled We wrestle, that's what wrestling is. I don't always think that's bad, to wrestle with what the Lord tells us and what we're holding in our hands. That conviction, that that means that conviction is starting to come in and it's starting to do the work that God does. But I, I do know that many times as Christians, we will wrestle with a sin, even come to a new conclusion, even come to a new perspective over what that sin is, even decide in our mind, I probably will never do that again. And then we stop short, that's where we stop. We start with wrestling, we don't carry it forward. We skip the hard work of confession, ownership, and even gospel celebration, which we'll get into here in a moment. But change begins with an honest appraisal and confession, that you and I, as I like to say, have thrown rocks at God. Picked up rocks and thrown them at Him. But a confession like that doesn't hold any value if we don't think that the sin is a sin doesn't hold any value. If we think our sin is no big deal, then we don't really have any problem picking up rocks all over again, even if we just put them down, so to speak, right? It's, it's kind of like sinning becoming uh, the same wound in our hearts as breaking a diet or we failed at a New Year's resolution. It's, it affects us, but it's not a huge crime, right? We don't really feel the, the draw to radically change, to go all in, Maybe a quick question we should ask before we even go any further is Should we feel the sting of shame whenever we sin? I mean, you won't hear anyone preach against the voice of shame like we do from this pulpit here. But should you feel a sting of shame when you sin? I mean, the answer is you should feel conviction. 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 Shame says you're unapproachable, you're unfixable, unsolvable, unlovable, unapproachable in all degrees conviction is something that's different. That is a gift of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that brings glory to God and brings health to you. Shame is different. Shame is someone that condemns. Shame is the voice of a lie in your life. Shame says nothing good will ever come from you. Friend, if you ever sense that you're no good for Jesus, even in the middle of rough wrestling with the Lord, if you ever sense that you are no good for Jesus, that's the voice of shame. That's the voice of condemnation and shame. That's not the person of the Holy Spirit speaking to you in that moment. I think these are some pretty important points for some of you. Some of you have been wrestling with the same sins for as long as you can remember. I mean as long as you can remember. You don't remember a life without some of these sins. It's probably even made you question your own salvation. You sin, promise you'll never do it again, and yet you do it again. You go back and you promise I'll never do it again, and yet you do it again. Go back and promise we'll never do it again, and yet we do it again. And then we hear the voice of shame saying, see, see, you're probably not even a Christian. You're, you're horrible for Christ. You're unapproachable. You're unlovable. And we take that condemnation and we wear it tightly like a cloak. And we hate the fact that all of our prayers sound the same over and over and over and over. We get weary of it until we get to the point where we would just stop fighting. We stop fighting whatever that sin is and we just make space for it. We collaborate, negotiate. I will let you in my life if you promise not to destroy me. I'll let you in this much, but this much only. We give shelter, right? This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to know. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus who came to live, die, and live again for you and me, The gospel of Jesus is incredible news for repeat offenders. So good news for us because the blood of Jesus is sufficient for all of your round trips, your repeated round trips, the same prayers over the same sins because of the same rocks you've been thrown over and over and over again. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. This is why this is important. If you cannot believe that, you will never grow. If you cannot believe that, you will never, ever grow. You see, the most scandalous part about the gospel is that Jesus comes close to you and me when we show zero promise and are most unlovable, right? That's what's scandalous. Jesus comes close when we are repeat rock throwers. Every day, every five minutes, he comes close to us. It jars us. But it's important because without a gospel like this, the only lever we have left for change is shame. That's all we have left. A performance-based existence. And that doesn't glorify anyone but you. If you could change your life because you just feel so dirty, you feel so shamed, and you let shame be the one that pushes you towards change, you become the hero. God's not glorified in that. You become the centerpiece. Self-reliant, self-glorifying. That is something the enemy is very excited about. It's a shame-based performance. It's death. But I think there's a reason we do it. I don't think we just go there and think that we're going to do it. I don't think we consciously just aim in that direction. I think it's, again, how we handle each other. I think we expect flawless improvement from others when they wrong us. We want people to prove that they will never damage us again before we forgive them, right? Don't we do that? They hurt us, and we say, okay, I'll forgive you, but I won't forgive you if I know ahead of time you're going to do it again. Won't do that. You have to promise. There has to be some sort of a promissory note you can give me. Some sort of a some sort of a, a a vow. You have to be. You have to feel extra dirty. You have to say words differently than ones you've already said. I want to see something different before I let you. Why do we do that? Because we're protecting ourselves from what further damage, further damage. That's how we handle each other. I'm not really talking about abusive situations right now. That requires more nuance and wisdom. Okay. I'm talking about basic dents and dings that we give to each other. The important thing you need to know about the gospel is that God does not protect himself from us. He doesn't protect himself from us as we throw rocks at him and our repeated failures. This is why we see what we see in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we see this cool moment. Peter comes up and says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times, right? Jesus isn't telling Peter to be less of a diva here. He's taking his view of forgiveness and reshaping it to look like what? The gospel. How he himself will forgive you and me. This is important for us. The unfiltered gospel, it provokes forgiveness real change. The scandalous gospel provokes real change. This is why Paul says in Romans 2, God's kindness is meant to lead us to forgiveness or repentance rather. God's kindness is meant to lead us or provoke us into repentance. So in your head, after you've done that thing for the 3,982nd time, you are meant to reflect on the goodness of God. You mean to tell me, Luke, that if I throw the same rocks at God for the next 38 years, sure, I'll repent, but I'll just keep picking them up. And keep you mean to tell me that if I keep failing in that, that God will still welcome me, still love me, still approach me? The answer is, is yes, with warp speed. Zero time passes, arms wide. That's how scandalous the gospel is. The fact that I could even say that and it bothers some of you shows you how much it is a jarring gospel. It's a beautiful gospel. How can can any sin compare to a God like this? You see, God doesn't shame us into compliance. If he does, it's not the gospel anymore. It's not the gospel anymore. It's not good news at all. So how do we how do we repent like champs? How do we do this? How do we practice good repentance? I think the first thing I see, and David again leads us in this, is we stop living in denial. We just stop it. 1 John 1.8, if we say, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And that's what self-deceit does. It kind of gives room and gives shelter to sin. Here we see David in this psalm refusing to cover his sin. Nothing held back anymore. No cutting corners, no compromising, no negotiating, no excuses, no rationalization, no blame shifting, no postponing, no shelter. Just sheer brutality with his own sins. He's brutal with it. I mean, can we, can we not just miss the fact that he pulled a page out of his journal, made a song out of it, published it, And we're reading it in January of 2023. That's brutal. That's a brutal way to handle your own sin. I mean, the good old American way in the church is just to kind of keep it it to ourselves. Don't confess it to anybody. I mean, We might not even say it out loud. He made a song out of it. That's bananas to me. That he would do something like this. So stop living in denial. Second, stop minimizing what your sin is. You need to know, and this is important when it comes to sin. This might be news to some of you. Whenever there is a transgression, it is always against God first before it's against anybody else. It's always a rock thrown in his direction, even if you're sinning against somebody else or the government or a people group or whatever it is. David says in Psalm 51, against you, you only, Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Here's what's important to know about that passage. He wrote that right after adultery and murder. Right after it. Immediately after adultery and murder. He says against you. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil. Does this mean that he did not sin against the people he sinned against? No, and it was a long list. It wasn't just Uriah that was murdered. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his inner court. He sinned against his nation. Sinned against himself. He sinned in every direction imaginable. And still, as J.J. Perone says, and I'm quoting him, face to face with God, David sees nothing else No one else can think of nothing else but God's presence forgotten, his holiness outraged, and his love scorned. Every sin is a sin against God before it's a sin against anyone else. If you're cheating, murdering, gossiping, forsaking community, you name it, big, small, all declare that we have a glory that is supreme over the glory of God. That's why it's a sin against him first. You know, I think it's important to just bring that up because, I mean, there are a level of sins, whether we like to say it out loud or not, that we think are victimless ones. For the most part, I think the church in America thinks that pornography is probably a victimless sin. Um, Not evangelizing being a victimless sin. Not serving victimless sin. There's probably a long list of them if we all care to sit down and write them down. These are sins that affect nobody, really. They're just kind of sins into the ether. There is no such thing. No such thing as a victimless sin. God receives those rocks. We're throwing them at him. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. Paul has a lot of words on this. We're only going to read a few of them. 2 Corinthians 7, we're going to be in verse 8. And this is him talking to a young church that, that was full of sin. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, Okay, so he wrote a letter before this, and this is what he's referring to. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. I mean, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. It's a powerful passage. One of the things we can definitely get out of a passage like this is the conviction he's speaking of is the conviction that sin had offended God first, not just Paul. He's not looking out for himself in this passage. And he's calling such a deep repentance one of godly grief and sorrow for the fact that we've sinned against God. Not worldly grief, which is the contrast, which is just sadness for being caught, if we can all just be honest. A zealous repentance like this, he says has produced an indignation and a hatred towards the sin. And a people that can repent with this type of vigor, eventually, when they are done wrestling and moving through this discipleship process of repentance, it builds a crazy, crazy joyful people. You see, joy, it's really going to be joy that is waiting for us in the seat of Repentance. It sounds crazy because that's not typically what we think of when we think of repentance. But if you leave a moment of confession and repentance and you carry dread and shame with you, wires were crossed. There's something you're still missing about the gospel, something you're missing about how God sees you and how you see him. Repentance, it might begin with bitter wrestling and difficult confession, but it cannot end there. Real repentance ends with celebration. Celebration. Because God has covered it. God has covered it. Joy, rest for the bones, wasting no more. This is what awaits us. This is why I think it's important for us church to know that we, we can run to repentance. We can run to it. We could be eager about it. We could practice it. We can, we can offer it to each other. We can coach others in it. It doesn't have to be something that we just keep between us and ourselves. Here's a big question, though, and again, this is one we talked about a couple weeks ago in our men's ministry. If we've been forgiven of all of our sins, then why do we pray as Jesus teaches us in Matthew and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors? Sounds like a little bit of redundancy is there, right? That's what it seems like. The answer is this. Jesus is not leading us to doubt the power of his blood. He's not leading us to believe that Our our absolution from all sins is conditional in any way. In fact, we see in Colossians, Paul speak very deeply on this. He says in chapter two, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And here it is, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he forgave all our trespasses, past, present, the ones you haven't even thought about yet, the ones you haven't even been tempted in yet, forgiven. If you are in Christ, there will be sins that you will commit. Because again, we, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You'll sin in 10 years, 20 years. Did you know that that's already covered by the blood of Jesus if you're in him? Already. It's fascinating the power of the blood of Christ. Whenever you look at it with that lens on it, everything nailed to the cross. And we can't unconvince him of this. Not everything we do is acceptable to the Lord, obviously, but we as his children ourselves are acceptable to the Lord. This is what we looked at last week when we kind of uh, maybe focused in on the term justification, which, again, is more of a legal and forensic term of how God sees us as judge how we could be clean before him. And, and Colossians does a good job of maybe kind of helping us see it from that angle because we have a canceled record of debt. Canceled with all of its legal demands on it. So what this means is as a rock-throwing villain, myself, my record of debt has been expunged and I cannot appeal. And there will be no overturning by a higher court. That's sure. That's, that's something we could walk out. Put it in the bank. But then there are other passages that might confuse it. Maybe you have found them. 1 John 1.9. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If there's a condition in there. It's conditional. Right? Meaning if we don't confess our sin, maybe we won't be forgiven or cleansed. What gives? What's the story on this? Friends, listen, there is no disagreement between these two passages, no conflict. There's no disagreement or conflict between the once and for all and forevermore clean and forgiven and this, our continual need for forgiveness for day-to-day sins. As a judge, God wipes our record clean. Our Father, however, is quite aware of our continuing and pervasive sin. He doesn't have a blind eye to it. Come on. He doesn't expect us to have a blind eye either our father wants us to repent and be clean right God sees us in our sin if you're in Christ let me just say it personally to you if you're in Christ God sees you in your sin as a father sees you not as a judge as a father this is why we start the prayer with our father in heaven not our judge in heaven that's, that's, why, that's how we're led to see this prayer, that when we petition him for a clean, whole heart, it's from inside the family. We're not petitioning from outside the family. Friends, the more we grow in Jesus, the more we see our need for repentance. And God heals us. And we walk away whole. And we grow in joy. And then eventually, we see more need for repentance. And then God heals us, and we walk in joy. And then eventually... Happens again and again and again. And we rinse and repeat and we rinse and repeat until one day we don't anymore. Until one day, all sin is removed. All sin is removed. So if the question is, is, are all my sins already forgiven? The answer is yes. Absolutely. If the question is, do disciples stop confessing sin? The answer is no. Never. It's a lifetime journey for us. We need to get good at it. Very good at it. But the second big question I wanted to answer is, are we required to confess our sins vertically only to God, or does the Bible lead us to confess horizontally to those around us? The answer is depends, basically. No one likes that as an answer to a question, right? Depends. I can say confidently there are no need for confessional booths anymore, right? Our Catholic friends are wrong in this. I'm sorry if you're Catholic, There is no need for confessional booths. Jesus is the only mediator required between us and the Father. He's the last priest. He's the last sacrifice. He's actually the last penitential payment. So that means we don't have to pay penance anymore. And listen, we can pay penance just like the Catholics can. We just do it a little differently, don't we? Self-punish ourselves. But friends, there are times to confess sins to each other there are. In fact, the New Testament gives several indications of horizontal confession. This is what we as a church have to be good at. This is where we falter a lot of times. I think a lot of times we can maybe get our arms around the idea of outwardly confessing our sin before the Lord, naming it, owning it, and then sell But when it comes to each other, whoa, Whoa, I've seen so much damage done because we just refuse to do this. Here's just a couple of the passages. Matthew 5, 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. This is what he's saying right here, by the way, because I think this is probably missed in some, some ways. This is just you before the Lord in a treasured moment. Here it's described as one where you are about to leave a gift at the altar. This back then would have been a moment that you didn't have your cell phone on, right? It's an uninterruptible moment. It's a moment that is... Clean, it's sanctified and treasured, it's a holy moment. It doesn't, it doesn't get interrupted. Why? Because you know, hey, I know you need to tell your dad that. Don't tell him right he's about to go offer that gift on the altar. Wait until after that. It was one of those moments. And then still, Jesus says, if you know that Bob has an issue with you, even though you're even though it's a special moment, it's not as special as that reconciliation and forgiveness. Go get it fixed. There's power in this, there's expediency. In this passage, get it fixed. Make it right. And then conversely, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, that's not just Bob has a problem with you and you're aware of it. You got a problem with Bob. Go get it fixed. A whole different sermon could be preached on how to do this well. Maybe a class would be better on how to do this well. Because people goof this up all the time and they end up doing just as much damage trying to fix something. I want you to see that there is room for horizontal confession. And then there's the go-to, James 5.16, which is where most people turn. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. There's a little bit of nuance with this passage right here because the context, there's a, a man who's likely not saved, who is sick, Right, and that kind of changes the way people read this passage. What I want you to see in this passage is the sins that they're confessing to one another are not against one another. They're against the Lord. I'm sinning against God, and I'm confessing that to you. There's room for that. We have indications in the New Testament of this. Here's my caveat, right? Asterisk warning. Galatians 6 helps us in this. Brothers, Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a a spirit of gentleness. That restoration would mean that there's repentance, okay? So just understand, if you read between the lines, repentance is happening here. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's discretion in here. You're supposed to kind of carry away this... This feeling that discretion is required. And you'd be right if you did. In confession, whether you are listening to somebody confess a sin or you yourself are confessing a sin to somebody else, be very careful of naming every salacious detail out loud. It's not helpful. I hate seeing this. Some people, and I understand it, the urges in all of us, to sensationalize the sin, to elevate it almost a little bit, To sensationalize the confession just in hopes that in doing so, forgiveness is more effective. If I feel extra bad about this, if I feel extra dirty about this, if I feel extra shamed, maybe I'll be extra forgiven. What we want is extreme forgiveness, and so we feel like extreme confession is what it's going to take to get there. That's not the case. Again, it's Christ that absolves that sin, not, not your extreme salacious confession. Be very careful in that because it leads others to sin, right? Again, that would be another sermon. But here I want you to see we have to be sensible, humble, and careful in how we confess our sins to each other. But we should confess our sins to each other as well. Friends, listen, I know we need to repent today. I know that. I know there needs to be moments of confession towards each other and towards God today. There just does. But don't let dread overtake this moment. I could, I could just tell, some of you are feeling it just inside like, oh gosh, we're going to have to repent. The music's about to get, get going up on stage and I'm going to have to have this real moment with the Lord and I'm just dreading that moment. I'm not looking forward to this moment of just kind of putting it out there. Friend, there is growth waiting for you. There is peace and rest and wholeness waiting for you. There's vibrancy waiting for a repentant disciple. Some of you have damaged somebody in this room. Make it right, and make it right quickly. Don't delay. It's done enough damage already. It's already done enough damage. Get it fixed. Get it fixed. Some of you have been damaged, but you have, in a martyr's path, have said, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to say anything about it, and you just have tried to suppress it and suppress it, but what you have found is bitterness and resentment. You just can't shake it, can you? Make it right. Let them know. Be gentle, have discretion, be humble, let them know. Make it right. Make it right. But all of us have an opportunity to cry out to God to cover our sin, not to make us Christian all over again, but to make us whole, to give us peace, to give us rest. And listen, I know I'm not talking to all Christians today. I I know that. I know that there are people in here in... Whatever your exposure has been to the church or to the Bible or to Christ or to the gospel, I don't know. Everyone's got various paths. But if that is you, you still hold a record of debt and all of its legal demands, and it has not been cleared. And you have found the life of trying to trust in your own resources and your own strategies. You have felt condemnation. You've tried to clean, you've tried to scrub, it doesn't work. You know that you've thrown rocks at God. You can start to feel it. You understand. Or you probably wouldn't be here any other way. Let me just remind you of something you probably already know. But without Christ, there is no righteousness to be found. Without Christ, there is no sacrifice you could possibly give. Without Christ, there is no other priest who can mediate a relationship between you and the Lord. Without Christ... There is no penitential penance that you could walk in that would impress him. None. I suspect you already suspect that. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, so were all the records of debt against God for those who trust in Jesus, and he carried those into the grave with him, with their legal demands. If you fail to trust in Jesus, you yourself will carry that record of debts before a judge, and this judge is just, and he is fair, and he judges rightly. This is my appeal. With everything you have, with every fiber of who you are, surrender to God. With all that you've got in you, abandon your life to follow God. Abandon it all to follow God. And join the church. I'm not saying join legacy, I'm just God's church, his brothers and sisters across the globe as we celebrate. We can smile, guys, with joy. We can smile with happiness that God has made us clean. We can rejoice that we have no record of debt. He has forgiven us forever and always, and he forgives us today.